find something of value. The higher education community of South Africa is on intellectualization. How central this humanity is. Welcome to The Academic Citizen. I'm your host, Mahita Ikani. The magnificent 2021 painting, Original Sin, in a Circle, by Johannes Pokela, shows an array of figures that could be historical or futuristic, arranged in a fantastical scene suspended as if between heaven and ocean. Fittingly, the painting is in shades of indigo and blue, following on from the last episode, where my co-host, Dr. Nosipom Gomezulu, thought with green to explore various aspects of our relating with land, the ground beneath our feet, and the ways in which our social relationships can be greened. Today, we think about that other version of Eluchlaza, blue. This journey will take us into and below the ocean and beyond forms of earthbound thinking. Have you ever been in an airplane on a day flight over an ocean and looked out of the window at the expanse of blue sky around you and the shimmering oceans below? That sense of awe at the great expanse and how minuscule we as individuals are against the power of nature is the feeling that I have when I engage with blue. But also, after talking to the brilliant minds who are guests on this episode, I have also learned how blue connects us and makes us feel bigger, and more than simply our tiny selves. This planet of ours looks blue from outer space. The atmosphere above us, the oceans that surround us, the water and oxygen that we and all living creatures rely upon to survive. These blues are our commons, our inheritance, and indeed comprise what we will pass on to our descendants for better or worse. This is the great challenge of our current generation, and our political struggles. Can there be social justice without environmental justice? And what will it take to integrate the ongoing quest for equality and a better life for everybody on this earth with a deeper understanding of how we as a species connect with the blue around us? On this blue planet surrounding us is ocean. Ocean so vast and deep that we have explored barely 5% of them. We have conquered the skies, perhaps irreparably, with jet planes crisscrossing the globe and so many satellites launched into space that their lights now obscure our view of the stars. And although there is so much to explore in the heavens above, in today's podcast, our journey with blue will take us to the ocean, both its surface and beneath, as we explore the multiple resonances, both scientific and social, that salt water offers us. I'm Megan Judge. I'm an artist and a researcher. I'm based out of the Oceanic Humanities for the Global South Project at Wits University in a department called Wiser There and the Wits School of Arts. Welcome to our podcast. We're looking forward to exploring blue with you. So I believe your interest in working with the ocean as an artistic modality and as a research topic, it emerged partly from a very interesting journey that you took many years ago on a boat across the seas. Can you tell us, how did you end up on that boat and where did it go to and what was it like? Sure, that was a wonderful journey that I've never, ever recovered from. (laughs) I actually wanted to get to Madagascar for some other research that I was interested in. 
And the boat was a means to get there. So I was living in Cape Town at the time, and my partner at the time wrote a little note and stuck it up at the yacht club that said Madagascar or bust. And we got a phone call about two weeks later from a skipper who was delivering a boat to my yacht. And usually one would come down with the currents, but because of the piracy that was happening in the region, this boat had to circle around the whole of Africa, around the continent of Africa from Djibouti to, I think it was South America, and then back up to Cape Town and then go up the current to get to Mayotte. So we didn't really know any of this, and we just joined as crew. It was a way for us to get to Madagascar eventually, and we kind of learned everything that we needed to know about sailing along the way. So you became sailors and you crossed the Indian Ocean. You sailed from Cape Town to Madagascar without any sailing training. So you learned, I guess, on the boat. Can you tell us more? What did it feel like being on the boat? How long were you at sea? What did you see? What did you feel when you were at sea? What was it like being on this voyage for four weeks? Well, it started out quite rough. I think I lasted until sunset after just having left the Cape docks. And at about sunset, my whole horizon line collapsed in on itself and I got seasick. And for anyone who knows what that feels like, you know what I'm talking about when I say everything became completely discombobulated. And I was horizontal for the first few days of the trip. Also, we're in the Cape of Storms here, so... Skirting around the edge of Cape Town and the Cape of Storms was incredibly, incredibly rough in terms of weather and weathering experiences. But then we docked at a few places along the way, and when we eventually left the edge of terror and moved out and managed to cross over the current and find routes to sail within and winds to carry us along, it changed a lot. And yes, it was tropical cyclone season and there was continuous high weather activity. And we were moving through what I realized later are chains and trains of cyclonic eddies. There was a kind of a pattern of stillness to calm that seemed to sink into us and weather into our, at least into my body and into my psyche. And when that happened, it was really wonderful because all sense of terror, time and destination and when we last left and when we will arrive, disappeared. And I tuned into this weathering pattern more. And it seemed to be heightened and marked by the loss of radio signal. So when we finally couldn't catch the weather report anymore and everything turned into this kind of static sound, which in itself is a very interesting sonic phenomenon of you know picking up mainly lightning strikes and all sorts of interesting earth cycle activities, that's when I started to become kin, you know, find a kinship with the ocean space and with the weathering space and forget a little more about all these terror comforts that I'd been clinging to so much. And you must have seen, as well as heard, some beautiful things. Can you tell us about your experience of being out there in the great blue expanse of the ocean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this notion of the blue is really wonderful because it's also so sort of historically charged with an idea of emptiness and vastness and kind of nothingness and terra nullis, but is always in complete activity. And so this ongoing, endless, as far as the eye and your experience of uh, vastness can reach, 
this ongoing endless horizon all around was continuously changing and charged in every single moment through the elements and through the activities of what was happening in that particular moment given the weather conditions and especially highlighted when the sun was moving across and hitting the blue in different ways and other colors filtered in with this blue. And it just became apparent that there is no surface out in the ocean, that there's always lift and drop and changing molecules lifting from reservoirs and particles leaving, drifting as this happens. Just this ongoing activity that you're kind of on the surface, but the surface is always alive. And did you ever get in to the water while you were on this journey? Yeah, we weren't allowed to, because as you can imagine, if a body is not on the boat, it's incredibly difficult to keep your eye on that body, given the amount of waves that occur between you and that body and how this vessel moves and drifts away. So we weren't allowed to, but we did. We tied a rope to ourselves, and when we were having our shower at the edge of the boat, we'd step off and just dunk into this ocean because I really wanted to stop and swim, but we were delivering a boat. We were working, so we weren't allowed to. And the experience of going under the water and looking down and seeing blue in that way where there's an endlessness to it and blue occurs because of the vastness of space. It's not like if you pick up the water in your hand and you look at it, it's not blue. It's a phenomenon of vastness. And looking down as far as you can possibly see until the blue leads to black, leads to imperceptibility, you just feel so minuscule and you can't help but wonder what's looking back up at you. So you climbed back on the boat quite quickly, I'm sure. (laughs) So this beautiful, difficult, challenging voyage that you took in some ways also led you to your research practice, your artistic practice, and certainly the PhD that you're currently doing. What is it about the ocean that you are working with, thinking with, studying with, making with at the moment? What is your body of practice, your body of thinking? Well, I think, you know, interestingly, I was going to Madagascar to research a social phenomenon and understand how narratives exist and, you know, power and silencing within that. And because of the voyage there, because of how I got there, because of the slow experience of being able to like sort of churn with the inquiry there. Yeah, I became completely infiltrated into, in a surprising way, Isabel Stenger speaks about this intrusion of Gaia. And I really feel now like I can't approach those questions without recognizing this elemental activity that comes with it. And so I've brought that into my inquiry now. I turn to try and face it. And I'm working with the ocean as a way to challenge my perceptibility of my way of thinking and the overdetermined biases of terror-based knowledge, which is something that Melody Chu picks up. And just to really reckon with what it means to produce narratives of power and think about silencing when you're a very terror formation of a human. And I think that it really helps me to also grapple with the apparatus of what human is as well. These are some of the big philosophical questions that kind of guide your inquiry. But you're an artist, you're a maker of things. I know you work with a lot of multimedia forms of expression and creation. So how does the ocean come into the things that you create? I know that you're a research artist, so you make in order to think and to explore and to theorize. Can you tell us more about what of the ocean are you working with and how? 
I'm very interested in sound and the sonic because I feel like it's a mode of communication within the ocean that is very silenced on terra. Of course, the visual is overprivileged on terra. And even the concept of the sonic is shifted in this overprivileged way where we think of it as sound as opposed to vibration and feeling. So I've been trying to follow that. I've been trying to think through these entanglements that I'm interested in by following the sonic and by inquiring through the sonic and sonic practice and sonic creativity as a way to help reconfigure the research as it's happening. There are wonderful practitioners who are working on the edge of the ocean and who are continuously becoming rearranged because of their engagement with the ocean. And I'm wanting to find out those stories and work with these people to tell these stories of oceanic rearrangement, but by tracing sonic inside of that. So how do you access the sonic in the oceanic? Like, practically speaking, as an artist, what materials do you gather and what do you make with those materials? So sometimes the sonic appears in the visual and there isn't any sound, but it's an affective zone. But other times, these kinds of finding of zones of sonic activity, which is a knot and an entanglement that can help think through local Anthropocene kind of moments. So what I've been doing is I've been, you know, walking around with a hydrophone and dunking it into kelp forests in places where people gather and in places where there is already oceanic practice going on through other people. And so in conversation with these other people in a way, but then dipping our listening into spaces where we can't perceive and then really taking that and drawing it back through philosophy, science, embodied knowing and ontological epistemic kind of questionings to understand and grapple with perception and what is perceived of as silence or as noise and what we can't hear and what these tiny little clicks are that are actually the technology for seismic survey blasting right now, but just how much is not perceived. There's a reckoning, there's a churning and there's a discomfort there, which I think is quite political and for me very interesting. And The sonic reveals that. So fascinating. But you had an interesting, I guess, paradox in that when you were about to start with the actual making, gathering work that was needed to write your PhD, we all got pushed into a lockdown and you found yourself like landlocked and cut off from the ocean that was meant to be one of the resources for your work, your making, your thinking. How did you experience that? How did you manage to work with the ocean while you were landlocked? Can you tell us the story of of that? When I started this research, I planned to go visit the ocean. When I handed in my proposal, a week later, the first wave of lockdown was implemented. And so there was no ways that I could make it to the ocean. And I was sat there having to, well, in the beginning, it was just freak out. And after that, it was figure out a way through. And what became very apparent, because I was breastfeeding at the time, was that my body was a source of knowledge and a source of intelligence. There was an intelligibility that was happening outside of my mind and my thinking that was happening between my body and this breast milk and this child and healing in ways that my brain was chasing behind, trying to make sense of 
And I just realized that there's this incredible bodily knowledge that I'm sitting with and within. And it was really through finding and locating within myself these spaces of rearrangement that connect to the weathering activities in the ocean, that connect to moving in the ocean, that I always knew were there. I always thought I had pools of water inside of me left over from being in the ocean. But now for the first time, I was able to really grapple with what that means and work from that space as a source of knowledge to access the ocean again. What's come from that is that I think I'll always do that. And I realized that this entanglement with the ocean This relationing is ongoing. It never ends. It's not an event that existed in the past. It's an ongoing phenomenon, and I'm always rearranged by it and always in relation with it and through it. So this beautiful metaphor or, I guess, theoretical position that you take, that there is an ocean within, certainly within you as an artist and a maker, but then can we extrapolate that to say that there is an ocean within each of us What does that mean tangibly? We are all bodies of water. We are fluid. Our bodies are not really bounded and binaried by where our skin ends. Just like the surface of the water, there's continuous activity between us and the material world around us. And our bodies are reservoirs for liquid, just like the ocean is a reservoir and the hydro-social cycle, I guess, of how water moves between ocean and atmosphere and how nutrients churn around the ocean. These kinds of phenomenons, I think, I think we're not separate from. I think it's, it's a question of thinking about ourselves as being in relation with and really disrupting that Cartesian divide of intelligibility and materials, recognizing ourselves as a part of that, as being within that, as absolutely reliant on earth cycles. Our every second breath comes from the ocean. We know that, but what that actually means and how our daily activities of living in this world really affect that. Christina Sharp put it really well, the deterioration of bodies inside the ocean have led to these pieces and little tiny particles of slaves still existing in the ocean water, which are eaten by fish and consumed by people. There's this ongoingness that our bodies are entangled in the world and in these cyclic activities. Mm -hmm. So in a very material sense. Last summer, a massive public outcry and legal battle took place to try and stop Shell, the fossil fuel company, from performing seismic surveys off the coast of the Eastern Cape, one of the most beautiful and unruined stretches of coastline in South Africa. Scientists mobilized in partnership with community activists to make their voices heard about the matter of seismic surveying. To help us understand the ways in which sound affects non-human living creatures, especially those that live underwater, and why seismic surveys are problematic, we spoke to Dr. Aliza LaRue. Hi, I am Professor Aliza LaRue. I am working at the University of the Free State's Kwakwa campus, so it's up here in the middle of the mountains near Lesotho. I'm a zoologist, in fact, a behavioral ecologist. I study the behavior of wild mammals in particular, also acoustic communication in mammals and birds. My other important affiliations would also be that I am on the steering committee of SAGE, which is the scientific advisory group on emergencies, which is hosted within ASAF, 
And that was started as a response to the COVID pandemic to be able to give rapid scientific advice on emergencies as they're happening, as they're evolving. But it's not just focused on COVID. Therefore, we try to give sound scientific advice on whatever emergency is currently developing or affecting South Africa or you know, affecting South Africans. It's now a very broad mandate. I asked Dr. LaRue to tell us more about how sounds interact with animals on land and in the sea and to explain what is wrong with seismic surveying. We know how sound works. Sound is a wave that propagates, you know, you detect it via the vibration. For us, it'll be on your eardrums. And then for fish, they actually detect sound different ways, which is amazing. Some of them have eardrums through which they can detect sound. They also have a lateral line along their bodies that can detect these vibrations. And there's actually therefore indications that fish may be detecting sound in a way that we cannot necessarily comprehend because we don't detect sound that way. So it's very difficult to translate that <laughs> into human understanding. And if we focus on the obvious fish and mammals that are swimming, we know how much whales, how much cetaceans rely on acoustic communication. And we obviously find it also fascinating, the absolute vast distances that can get covered by sound underwater because it isn't air. It is a thicker medium. It therefore carries the waves for a longer distance. And we find the sound magical. And we actually know there's a lot of evidence that all of the noise we make underwater is affecting the more obvious communication pathways for cetaceans, especially. When you say um, the sounds we make underwater, do you mean human mm, activities? Yes. So although our advisory now focused on, you know, the threats posed by seismic surveys, almost a drop in the ocean. Oh, that's a horrible <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> that's a perfect metaphor. <laughs> because... There's actually so much noise being caused by humankind's activities, shipping noises. We rely so much on vast distances being covered by tankers and so on. That all makes noise. We're thinking of drilling activities that are already happening. If you get close to the shore, of course, there's almost more normal, less impactful sounds that we make, motorboats and all of those things. But we are causing a lot of noise underwater already seismic surveys and the drilling and so on, the activities that would follow after the detection of hydrocarbon deposits is part of this noise. And now the challenge here is that we know that noise is energy. It acts on the environment and it has been defined by some organizations as a pollutant. We haven't defined noise pollution underwater as an actual potentially very dangerous pollutant. Our laws in South Africa only minimize noise pollution when it affects humans, when it disturbs us. And we haven't gone as far as saying, listen, this noise pollution is a very real factor in our oceans. So our regulation of this noise is far weaker than it mm. could be and mm. should be. So any human being who lives next to a noisy place will know the impact that that noise has on them. Yes. So I'm aware that you are an expert in acoustic communications of more like land-based creatures and species. In your research, is there also a relationship between human-created noise and the well-being of other species that we coexist with? 
Well, we know that animals respond to the noise. So if you think of in urban areas or areas, as you say, like where there's a lot of traffic and so on, any animal that now relies, say, for mating purposes, birds, frogs, invertebrates as well, you know, the insects and so, if you want to keep on attracting a mate, (laughs) you need to be heard. So you need to find a window in that almost constant background noise that is present. And there's evidence from a lot of species that animals will then alter the sounds they make to try and be heard, either changing the frequency so that you don't overlap with the hum of the background noise or alter the timing of your activity. Because if the biggest noise is right when you're supposed to do your dawn chorus, you're singing, you may have to just shift that timing so that you don't have to expend all of your energy just to be heard above this human-induced noise. And we have to expect that something similar to that would be happening underwater too, but we are only just scratching the surface of acoustic communication underwater. When I think of the exploration of space and so on, I'm very excited about it, but we have not explored our own planet yet. There's so much we don't understand about the marine environment because it is so vast. And now, why don't we anticipate that there is going to be a lot to discover? To come back to the seismic survey conflict, which I think is key to speak with you about because you have been, you know, one of co-authors of a couple of important advisories from your scientific advisory group on emergencies, as well as another recent paper that you and colleagues have written. What you guys have done, I think, very effectively is show the connection between three things, the well-being of marine biodiversity, right, mm-hmm. the climate crisis, and seismic exploration. Mm. So perhaps we could start with some of our listeners may have heard a lot about seismic surveys because it gained a lot of publicity in the media around last summer. So can you explain to us what is a seismic survey and why do companies like Shell and other big fossil fuel companies, why do they use it? How do they use it? What does it look or sound like? How does it operate in practice? In practice, the commonly used form of seismic surveys is when they have air gun arrays that they, as far as I understand, I think I either tow it behind the ship, but they have it on the ship. And these air guns let out booms of noise. Now, the same way that you use sonar, which is sound, to bounce off of objects, to get an idea of the shape of the object when it feeds back to you, the same way they use these air guns to make a specific sound, which is a low-frequency impulse to detect what is going on in the bed of the ocean as they move around. And I believe that especially the lower frequencies give you a very good indication from this almost sonar-like reverberation of where there may be hydrocarbon, so shale gas effectively deposits under the water in the bed of the ocean. So they use these really loud booms and they're repetitive, right? It's not just once off, it's these ships are towing these guns effectively that set off very loud sonic explosions repeatedly in order to try and map the presence of hydrocarbons under the ocean floor. You've already talked a bit about how human-created noise impacts various species, but what kind of impact might this quite extreme form of sound have on marine life, on the well-being of our fellow creatures under the sea? So different impacts have been documented. Sometimes studies have been done showing very limited effects of the seismic survey on, say, a specific lionfish or so. They don't see that the lionfish responds to this. The stock's catching rate remains the same. 
but there are quite a large number of studies that show, for example, whales and the, the patients that we think of that use acoustic communication, they move away. The easiest response of any animal is to get Run. out of the way of the swim. So, swim for your life. Yes. Basically, yes, swim away. So behavior changes, that has definitely been documented. And this is why any country that is a signatory to agreements to protect, for example, cetaceans, they have to agree to also protect them through sound. And this is one of the reasons why the seismic surveys say that they're being environmentally aware by starting the booming noise slowly. So it's like a, a soft Start. They don't immediately start with a ra They give it a gentle increase so that they can give any unobserved whales or dolphins, etc., a chance to move away, which, of course, means that we all know that they are affected by this. I am aware of some other studies where the seismic noise caused krill populations to crash. So the krill is what some whale species eat. So invertebrates, their populations imploded probably temporarily, but it affected temporarily their population size. We do know that there are some other species that would also then try to get out of the way. And I don't want to say that this is necessarily causing direct physical harm, you know, it's Mm. not like beer fishing or some physical thing, but we still know so little Mm. about the effects this can have, and especially species that we don't find charismatic or economically commercially important, right? We haven't been studying the effects of these very loud noises on them. It all happens in the deeper regions offshore. It's not close. And that's the area, especially where we know so very little. So we simply don't have enough information to know how much damage could be caused. Yes. And this is what we've also been arguing is Shell and other companies that can benefit, obviously, from seismic surveys. They're saying there's a lack of evidence. Evidence of absence is not the same as absence of evidence. Very well put. Mm. Yeah, so they're making the wrong argument here. And Mm. you could buy it if you're the right person Mm. and you want to buy that argument. Mm. So, I mean, the fluffy media-friendly narrative of dolphins and whales, who are these kind of beloved species amongst many humans are going to be affected is one angle. The lack of knowledge, actually, about what happens and what kinds of species exist even and how they exist Mm. and how they live in the oceans, it's a huge area that requires research that could be interrupted in ways we can't even begin to imagine. Um, And then on top of it is the argument about extracting hydrocarbons. So... We are firmly into the age of the climate crisis. I don't think any of us can pretend that we are unaware of what the science is saying about carbon in the atmosphere. So Mm -hmm. would you like to talk to us about how this seismic surveying ties into the climate crisis and what implications that might have for us specifically here Mm. in our context in Southern Africa? So the seismic surveys themselves are not the direct contributors, I take, to the climate crisis, except that it could potentially be contributing to the biodiversity crisis that we're also facing. And yet we do not know. We cannot say that for sure, of course. But seismic surveys are the precursor to hydrocarbon, to the gas extraction. And that is a fossil fuel, even though it sounds like it's not a fossil fuel. It is a non-renewable source of energy. There are potentially billions of barrels of this gas under the water in South Africa's economic zone. 
And these gases, when they are being used, quite simply contribute to more carbon in the atmosphere. On top of that, once the deposits are discovered and then the decision is made that, yes, we need to now extract this gas, there is another process that is followed, but it takes a decade or so for the whole process to be ramped up for the fossil fuels effectively now to be extracted and produced. And it takes a while for that now to become usable as a source of energy, which of course we need energy in South Africa. So it's not like instantly there's gas, you're in for the long haul here. And then eventually after, I believe it's maybe 30 years maximum, after the discovery of the deposits, your wells run dry, you're done, done your exploitation of that. So the seismic survey, in theory, gives us access to gas in around 10 years' time that will only last Mm. for a generation, causing untold destruction and unknown potential destruction, and then just burning more fossil fuels and putting more carbon into the atmosphere. Exactly. And while we are investing in that, we're not spending our money investing in more creative solutions, green energy sources. As Dr. Larue pointed out, the gas that fossil fuel companies like Shell want to extract from below the ocean floor will end up being burnt. The waste then dumped into the commons, not at cost to the companies that produce that waste, but at huge cost to current and future generations of humans and all of our companion species on this planet. The ocean and atmosphere are connected, both metaphorically and molecularly, The oceans also absorb waste carbon, and their acidification is one of the main results of the excess carbon that humans, specifically those that control economies in order to enrich themselves, have been burning for centuries. The climate crisis is therefore one of the main destinations that we reach when we travel through blue. But another place that we reach when we travel through blue is the molecular salt, salt and salt water. For the last segment of this podcast, we stay with the ocean, but go looking for the invisible aspects of it. The ocean is also comprised of minerals, bacteria, and microplastics that we can't see with our naked eyes. The ocean is both a primordial soup and a potentially post-apocalyptic matter It is from the oceans that all life sprang, and the oceans also provide much nourishment to many species. To think more with blue as salt water, I spoke with artist and PhD researcher Zayan Khan, who works in very original ways with fermentation and who uses ocean salt water as a medium for food preservation. My name is Zayan Khan. I work mostly as an artist. But I do a lot of work around our understanding of land, of sea, and of food and seed. So food and seed is really a way that I'm able to connect a lot of the broader stories about land and sea to people, especially when it comes to the struggles that we face. I think my first language in work would be plants. That's my entry into land and sea, sea vegetables, I guess. And I am a PhD candidate at the Environmental Humanities South at the University of Cape Town. Zayan, you do a lot of fascinating work in relation to land, sea, food, seed, as you mentioned. But there's a specific work that you made recently that caught our attention that made us want to talk to you in the context of blue. And that was the short film that you made 
called Original Brine. Did yeah. I get that title right? Yeah. yeah. So, of course, the ocean is salt water. Can you tell us more about what attracted you to thinking with and working with salt water? No, definitely. I think the work with fermentation specifically, the work with fermentation came as a need with working with farmers around the West Coast of South Africa and needing a way to preserve plants, preserve vegetables, basically, without refrigeration, really because there's not a lot of extra income to start investing in things and support from government is very difficult and very thin. And then that kind of pushed me along this journey of looking at the surplus harvest that came out of most production areas and how much food was being wasted. And then kind of a deeper look into the way that neoliberal capitalism has kind of dug its claws into our food system. And so playing around over the years with fermentation and starting to learn really from the microbia, from the salt, from the water, from the materials of the ferments and the process that fermentation is and the learnings that it offers began to be something of quite a spiritual experience. And when I say that, I mean like specifically spiritually political and allowing me to kind of look deeper into ancestral work, ancestral thinking, especially, you know, a child of South Africa in these times, our lineages are so mixed and so, so smooshed together. Um, and so leaning into the fermentation and looking at it, you know, really from its materiality, it became mostly about the salt and thinking through salt and water as living elements, which we norm ordinarily don't consider to be living elements. And so I, I started just kind of playing in that area. And because I live very close to the sea, the sea is about two kilometers from here, and started thinking about, okay, but is fermentation something of an indigenous food creation? Would it have been something in the same way that we ferment something anaerobically in a jar, for example, would that have been something experienced here at this very shoreline? And we know there are certain stories about fermenting meat under the shoreline in the sand and all these kind of tidbits of information. But then I, I started thinking about what is that salt wateriness and what does that medium offer us when we're at sea, when we're on the shore and when we're on land? And then leaning into salt even more and into these like elementals, you very quickly realize that these elements have been here for billions of years. And so then dancing across the sense of deep time and using time as a partner, really, or a kind of a creator of, of something like a fermented jar, a fermented vessel, we start to think about where salt comes from. Where does water come from, you know? And you have to go back billions of years to understand those things. And at that entry point or at that beginning, there was also bacteria. And so starting to think about where life has evolved from, where my ancestors reside, when do I start considering my ancestors' mine? Is it just at the human? But before that life evolved from something else? You know, where are these hard lines? Where are the boundaries? Thinking about the planet at a time before seas, you know, when the earth was one big ocean. And so original brine is really taking into account all of those thinkings and the elements that make up what we are today, thinking that we are also salt. We are also water, so much of us. And especially in this process of becoming mother and now thinking through descendants and the futures 
the flexibility of the way time dances becomes a much broader palette with which to operate and work. Mm, it's so yeah. beautiful because when we think about oceans, we often think about space, like the vast expanse, the vast depths that we still haven't explored. But it seems that your thinking is encouraging us to also think about oceans in terms of time. So like the deep time of the ocean and the oceans as almost the origin of all life. Yeah, exactly. um, and I wonder if there's anything you want to add to your observations on how all life as we know it to an extent, emerged from salt water. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, the space of ocean is also never still. There's never stillness in the space. It's constantly moving and dissolving and diluting. So to think through that word solution also, you know, as an answer, as a space to develop even more, you know, but the ocean is, you know, the solution of everything that's lived. Everything goes through the ocean. Even when we throw a piece of plastic away and it lands in the landfill, it's very quick that all of that leaches into the ground below and then, you know, ends up in the ocean. That's just the way of the world. When we think about water and clean water in an industrialized time and using water, the same water that's flushing our shit down the drain, basically, is the water that we're drinking. There's something really interesting in that in our relationship to something so sacred. But because of the processing of water, water becomes empty. It's very, it's almost sterile. It's very thin in its properties right mm. compared to water that flows from the mountain or water that's within mm. an aquifer etc so water is then kind of taken from its habitat taken from the land to become something that is sterile and what we consider clean and good enough to drink good enough to use in hospital good enough for all of these things Water should be mineralized, right, mm -hmm. to be healthy. Water should be mm -hmm. mineralized to be itself because when you put water into a system with this kind of industrialized water, it will pull minerals from its environment, whether that environment is a mountain stream or whether that environment is a body. And so when we look at a lot of the bodies that are walking around, and like a lot of my people are struggling with hypertension, with cancer, with diabetes, a lot of lifestyle illnesses, high blood pressure, etc. Drinking water like this can also be pulling all these minerals from these people. So there's something that we're missing yes. that becomes a missing link. And it's not kind of known. People just kind of assume that the water that comes out of the tap, you know, is good to go. But that water can also be detrimental mm. for our health, if not mineralized. And I think that connection wow. that you're drawing <laughs> between water and the mineral state and them being ultimately connected Water exactly. is like the archetypal elemental medium in a way, right? The thing that connects all living existence and also the thing that flows and can get through almost every material. And yeah, you're raising some beautiful points there. Water needs to be a solution, right? Mm. Water cannot be, you know, hydrogen and oxygen. Mm. It's got to be a lot more than that. I mean, a lot of the solution people will say is that it's, you know, it's got fluoride in it, etc. But when we look at salt as well, a lot of the elemental salts, there's different kinds of salts as well, you know, and so we have to just consider it in terms of that as a solution mm. as opposed mm. to something very thin. Mm. Our producer Taryn referred to you as the fermentation queen. You have a lot of <laughs> amazing expertise and knowledge about fermentation as a process for preserving food. Can you tell us more about whether, and if so, how, I'm not sure if I fully understand it, how you can use ocean water as a material for fermentation 
material, I think is the wrong word. But do I understand correctly that you can use yes. ocean water to ferment and to preserve yes. food? Precisely. So, so the short film original Brian was commissioned as part of a project called 100 Ways to Say We. And it includes a recipe in there of how to ferment with the ocean, which is basically to say that that all oceans are saltwater bodies. Saltwater is a brine, basically, and it goes according to various percentages. So lower percentages between two, I guess, and maybe maybe 8%, maybe 8 is a bit high, but let's say that, is a catalyst for microbial activity, right? For particular microbial activity, like lactobacillus what we call lactofermentation. There's many different kinds of fermentation. And here we're focusing on anaerobic salt fermentation. Yet, if you go higher than that, salt water then just acts as a preserver because the amount of salt in the water is too much, it'd be too corrosive for the bacteria to thrive. And so if you look at different oceans, different seas around the world, there are different salt water contents within those seas. And you know this by excluding the water from that ratio. So if I were to collect five liters of Atlantic water and boil it down, I can work out what the percentage of that salt water is by seeing how much in weight the salt is left in my pot compared to how much the water was, right? And so we often work around, it's like 3.5, 4.2% of salt, which is a perfect amount to ferment with. And so you basically would harvest ocean water from a clean source. This means a place that there is no pollution that you can sense with your eyes or with smell, that there is no visible pipes that are coming out of the urban sphere from behind. It does good for you to also taste the water. A good way to do that within a space like Cape Town, for example, is to go where the marine protected areas are and then just go outside of the boundary. So it's not illegal, your harvesting, right? Which is a whole conversation for another podcast. <laughs> and so you would harvest that water and then strain it through something very fine, like a cheesecloth or a coffee filter to get rid of any kind of microplastics or sand, ultimately. And then what you're left with is very clean, visibly clean water but it's still full of zooplankton potentially, phytoplankton, which also, you know, I, I make a point to say that I would not consider this vegan because of the, the potential zooplankton. And then you boil that down because ultimately if there is any zooplankton in that water, because of the protein in the zooplankton, if it begins to decompose because the oxygen is going to be starved from it, then you know the smell of decomposing protein, mm. of that flesh smell. And so especially when it comes from the sea, it's not very pleasant. So you want to boil everything to just kind of neutralize it. And then once it's cool, it's ready for fermenting. And it's basically that simple. And then you can That's use it. that substance to preserve different like vegetables and different foodstuffs too. Cheese if you want. Yeah, wow. exactly. I mean, I make the joke, but it's true. Everything will ferment apart from like plastic and glass. You know, mm. you can ferment metal in salt water. Wow, if you want. interesting. It's so corrosive. But when you are fermenting something alive mm. through, and there's a beautiful analogy around fermentation as death making because you are taking harvested materials, sinking them into a brine, cutting off the oxygen by closing the jar, 
And yet in its death, it becomes so much more alive because of the microbial activity. Mm -hmm. If you were to look under a microscope and if we consider life in terms of area squared, right? And you looked at it before and after you fermented it after. It's ridiculous. It's like trillions, trillions times more. And I don't know what a trillion is, but it's a lot (laughs) more than what it was, you know? Yeah. So it's really that simple. Well, it doesn't sound simple. It sounds complex, but it sounds very beautiful. (laughs) What do you think the relationship is between, I guess this is a big question, but I mean, you know, obviously there's a food security crisis and perhaps you're making the argument that fermentation is one way that we can address that crisis. So I wonder if you have any thoughts about like the relationship of the ocean and brine fermentation using ocean water to, you know, a more democratic and equitable food supply and food security for you know, all human beings who live on this beautiful planet of ours. It's uh, complex in many ways because the design of food insecurity goes back so many hundreds of years and really institutionally severing people from the knowledge of survival, which is how to eat, you know? And it goes beyond that. Obviously, we know how, how do we menstruate without capital? Even sex is full of capitalism and birth. I mean, it's a whole thing. But with food, fermentation is one element that we've lost almost completely. We know that it still exists with alcohol, making alcohol and people, you know, being able to make alcohol in their homes. And lockdown really taught us a lot about this. We know that there's a lot of conversation around fermenting wheat and salt and water to make bread. And there's been a huge revival of that because, I mean, there's a lot to speak about in terms of corporate collusion and, you know, genetic modification within the bread that is a staple of our country. But in terms of fermented vegetables, the lines begin to blur a bit because we have the conversation about salt and how salt can be detrimental to those who have health issues, diseases, which is a bigger conversation that we may not be ready to have right now. But I think an alternative or looking at the ocean for solution, there's so much to be said about sea vegetables. So much to be said about Mm -hmm. sea vegetables. Even if it was kind of a hidden in plain sight food additive much more than it is now because sea vegetables are so high in bioavailable nutrients, which means that it's very easy for the body to assimilate them and that they grow at such a rapid rate. Like it's crazy amounts that seaweed can grow within season. And it's very much available, except there are holdups within the permits to get allocation to harvest seaweed it's all been taken up by Mm. others you know Mm. and there's no space for thinking about sea vegetable and nutrition apart from what we call agar people say agar which is used industrially quite a lot but not as a vegetable you know Mm. the reason i say this is because in the years of doing this work the path to success is much easier walked with something like sea vegetables than it seems to be with fermentation because there's more conversation to be had in that way in terms of lacto-fermentation, anaerobic, using something like seawater. But the last thing I want to say about that is that looking at seawater outside of fermentation and looking at it in terms of just the cooking ingredients is something that I started doing when we were, what, what was it, day zero? What was that, 2016? I started using seawater in day-to-day cooking. And how can I replace 
water with something that is, you know, so freely available. It's easier and quicker for me to collect seawater than it is to collect spring water. And I think that's also a missing link because mm. the salt that people are consuming, the cheapest, most available salt is also very, it's mineral rich, but it's very thinly mineral rich, right? It's more sodium than anything else. So that conversation I was saying, it's difficult to get into in terms of people who are struggling with disease and salt and having the conversation about salt. I don't think we're quite there yet, but to say that seawater can offer something else. Mm. Seawater can be added to your soup instead of you adding that salt, you know. Seawater can be used to soak your beans before you cook them and then you wouldn't have to add salt to your meal, stuff like this. And so thinking in terms of what are our food preparation processes where the ocean can play a part, you know, for free. Our journey with Blue for this episode has taken us into the oceans. We've voyaged with Megan Judge on a yacht and thought about the sonic with her, as well as with Dr. Elisa LaRue. And we've explored the mineral composition and fermentation possibilities offered by saltwater, Zayan Khan. We've thought about how we come from the ocean, how we all have an ocean within us, and how the oceans are a common resource for all human beings to share and protect across space and time. With that, it's time to read the room. And here are a couple of suggestions of great things to read in relation to oceans. My name is Jackie Kuzgay, and I am a postdoctoral fellow at the Wits Institute for Social and Economic Research. The book I am recommending, and which I briefly talk about, is Writing Ocean Worlds by Sean Lavery. In Writing Ocean Worlds, published in 2021 by Palgrave Macmillan, Sean Lavery reads selected fiction in English by four writers, Amitav Ghosh, Abdul Raza Gurna, Lindsay Collin, and Joseph Conrad. The selected texts center on the dense and multilayered South-South connections along and across African, South Asian, and Arabian coasts, a geographical scope that constitutes the Indian Ocean world. The interport and transoceanic imaginations carried in the selected novels, and therefore in Sean Lavery's book, shift the literary space from land to sea and expand the outlook from nation to world. Just as the texts Sean Lavery reads cover an expansive geographical scope, so too do they account for an extended time period. They cover pre-European navigation of the Indian Ocean and extend to the post-colonial period. In so doing, and as argued by the author, these texts espouse alternative, multiple, and non-Eurocentric histories, and thereby provide recourse to retrieving forgotten histories of the Indian Ocean world. Their success in capturing these alternative and otherwise forgotten histories is partly because the authors draw from a myriad of sources in writing these novels, and these include lived experiences, familial and collective memory, folk tales, religious teachings, and research. Sean Lavery interrogates the plot of these novels and traces the lives and movements of characters to fashion these heterotemporal and heterospatial maps of the Indian Ocean world. Like the text Sean Lavery analyzes, this book writes the Indian Ocean into being. It imagines it, gives it life, and fills it in. Professor Isabel Hofbeyer's latest book is called Dockside Reading, Hydrocolonialism and the Custom House, published by Duke University Press this year. 
The book traces the relationships among print culture, colonialism, and the ocean through the institution of the British colonial custom house. In Professor Hoffmeyer's own words, in a piece about the book that she wrote for the conversation, she says the book is an attempt to embed print culture in the field of oceanic studies, to put water and paper closer together by tracing how dockside protocols shaped understandings of copyright and censorship. She continues, and this is a quote from her piece in the conversation. The literary consequences of the custom house eddied outward from the dockside, at times onto and under the water. Customs inspectors dumped unclaimed, smuggled, or banned items into the ocean, as did passengers approaching those ports where pirated reprints of copyrighted works were not permitted. The term that I, Professor Hoffmeyer, used to encompass these dockside protocols is hydrocolonialism, a concept that links sea and land, empire and environment. This concept could be used to talk about a wide range of ideas. They include colonization by way of water, maritime imperialism, colonization of water, occupation of land with water resources, political and military control of waters, a colony on or in water, the ship as a miniature colony or a penal island, colonization through water, flooding of occupied land, and colonization of the idea of water as a private resource. As you can tell from this snippet from Professor Hoffmeyer's full piece about her book, which you can read at The Conversation if you search hydrocolonialism. Her book offers a fascinating and very original account of the links between the colonial endeavor and the ocean. I'm Taryn Mackay from The Academic Citizen. On the 4th of November 2021, a Daily Dispatch article presented South Africans with a fait accompli. Charles Ames boom guns at the wild coast, the headline read. The South African public was informed that fossil fuel giant Shell would begin seismic surveys in search of oil or gas deposits from Morgan Bay to Port St. John's on December 1, 2021. The public at large declared its opposition to the planned degradation of this nature sanctuary and also to a government decision-making process that seemed intent on steamrolling, epoch-shifting decisions while giving too thinly veiled lip service to a public participation process. The scene was set for a David and Goliath battle that continues to this day in the courts of South Africa as affected communities and their allies who oppose the seismic survey continue to question the legitimacy of the public participation process Shell underwent. In the last court appearance on the matter last month, judgment was reserved. The Wild Coast holds a mystical space in the national imagination and the declaration of its seismic survey plans by Shell touched a raw nerve. At least 453,735 raw nerves, in fact, as the last count on the petition objecting to this action on change.org has recorded. The news dropped in November 2021, toward the end of what had been a long, hard lockdown for South Africans, many of whom were deeply interrogating our foundational assumptions as relates to society, production, the climate and bad governance. In some ways, the ensuing battle between affected marginalized communities and big corporate shell represents the tussle for the soul of this place we've come to call South Africa, and which is also known as Azania. 
The process has the texture of chinconery, bribery and forgery that carries the residue of interactions between imperial colonial forces and the indigenous people of this place at the historical moment of contact. Within 20 days of the public announcement of the news and nine days before the urgent court appeal to interdict Shell from the exploration, the Empire Theatre distributed the multimedia project, The Blue Blanket. The production, which can be found on YouTube, is a thought-provoking form of academic communication. Firstly, it is produced by the Empire Theatre, a research-based theatre-making methodology aimed at conducting and publicly interrogating research that democratises the way in which we surface and co-create knowledge. Secondly, the work is beautifully presented in a relevant and engaging format. The work also evokes deep questions about neocolonialism and the struggles of Indigenous people. It begins by centering Indigenous knowledge by priming the audience to the fact that, to quote, in Isitlosa, the word for ocean, Uluwandle, falls in the same noun class as Ubuntu. In Nguni languages, the ocean is not a thing, not an object. Like Ubuntu, we are because the ocean is. Therefore, a poem written from the ocean's perspective would be a we, not an I. Close quote. Accompanying illustrations encourage the viewer to think about the waves of thought that link the intention to conduct a seismic survey to the decolonial call for fees to fall in South Africa. Most significant, I find, is the speed with which the production was produced, allowing it to be a powerful communication tool in service of the communities that were resisting Shell when they needed it most. It's a five-minute must-see for all intellectuals who seek to be of service to the communities within which they reside and work. The illustrated poem is written by Helen Walney, hypnotically narrated by Mpume Mtombeni, and intuitively directed, illustrated, and edited by Dylan McGurry under the umbrella of the Empath Theatre. We're grateful for the permission to share a snippet of it with you here. How many kilometers of the ancestral realm will need to be disturbed before you rethink your futures? What will happen to those fishing families who we have fed for generations? Will you feed them oil? Dive deep into the center of your heart and answer these questions for yourself. The Academic Citizen is produced and funded by the South African Research Chair in Science Communication, hosted at Stellenbosch University. The aims of our podcast are to create a space for wide and deep discussion about key issues animating higher education in South Africa, Africa, the Global South, and beyond. Create a space for interdisciplinary exchange for academic researchers and educators. Help researchers, educators, and scientists to tell their stories and listen to and learn from each other's insights and experiences. And create a space for science in all forms to be communicated in order to serve social justice broadly conceived. We welcome your feedback, opinions, and suggestions for future guests and show themes. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or visit our website www.the-academic-citizen.org. This podcast was produced, researched, and scheduled by Taryn Mackay. It was sound edited by Victoria Dollar Harp 
and Fumani Mabokwane who provides communication support. We thank Eliza LaRue, Megan Judge, and Zayn Khan for contributing to this episode. We also thank Professor Isabel Hoffmeyer for permission to read extracts of her conversation piece and Helen Walner and Dylan McGarry for permission to use audio from the production Blue Blanket. The Blue Blanket was produced by www.empathiatre.com, a public storytelling project. The full version can be viewed on YouTube. Music